Hello and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Daniel Ramey. Today, we talk with Glenn Hubbard, Dean Emeritus, and Russell L. Carson Professor of Finance and Economics at the Columbia University Business School, and a member of RFF's Board of Directors. Glenn is out with a new book called The Wall and the Bridge, Fear and Opportunity in Disruption's Wake, that lays out a vision for economic policy in the United States in the face of populist rhetoric and rapid technological change. The book covers a wide range of topics, and in today's episode, Glenn and I will discuss the lessons that the book offers for the energy transition. The book and the conversation are full of insights, so stay with us. Okay, Glenn Hubbard from Columbia University and Resources for the Future, welcome to Resources Radio. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So, Glenn, um, you are uh, a little unusual uh, as a guest on our show in that most of our guests are focused, you know, exclusively or primarily on energy and environmental issues. And although much of your work is not explicitly focused on environment, you have a a really important interest in it. Of course, your connection with RFF and environmental topics. So um, can you tell us a little bit about to what you attribute your interest in environmental issues, whether it started as a kid or maybe later in life? Sure. Actually, my earliest research as an economist was in energy and environmental economics. I'm a, my main field in economics is public economics, so it was a subset of that. But that's not what drew me to environmental economics. It, it really was two things in childhood. One was scouting, uh, the constant love of the environment and preservation. And the other was faith and elements of stewardship, of which I have always felt environmental stewardship to be a moral responsibility. And even though I'm an economist, that definitely colors the way I think about the environment. Yeah, that's great. That's really fascinating. And where did you grow up? Where were you doing your scouting? I grew up in the middle of nowhere, a little town called Apopka, Florida. So if you took the state of Florida and through a dart right at the middle, you'd hit me. It's a town that's um, near Orlando. When I grew up, um, a couple of stoplights, um, not a lot there, mainly agriculture, but I enjoyed it. That's great. Well, um, so we're here today to talk about your new book, which is called The Wall and the Bridge. Um, it's a really fascinating book. I was able to, to read an advanced copy, and it makes so many important arguments and touches on so many important issues. Um, can you give us a thumbnail sketch as to why you wanted to write this particular book um, and what walls and bridges represent? Sure. Uh I was concerned and am concerned as an economist about the inability or unwillingness of our political system to address structural change. You know, as an economist, I know that the growth and dynamism that we celebrate in our economy is like the head side of a coin. And the flip side, the tail side of that coin is disruption and dislocation. You know, Adam Smith knew that. 250 years ago or whatever, when he wrote The Wealth of Nations, when he argued against uh, mercantilism in favor of openness. In today's world, I, I saw the problem that we'd seen technological change and globalization bring so many benefits in our society and around the world, but also a lot of dislocation. And I felt that not just politicians, but economists too, were focused only on the upside without noticing the downside. If you think where we are right now in the economy, 
with big shifts in artificial intelligence and machine learning, and importantly from RFF's perspective, the adaptation we need to do to combat climate change, we're going to have further wrenching transitions, and we need to figure out how to have a just transition. Yeah, absolutely. And we're going to talk, you know, explicitly about those energy and environmental issues in a couple minutes. But first, you know, starting off with that broader economic lens, um, looking across the economy, um, can you tell us a little bit more about kind of just explicitly like what, what do walls represent? What do bridges represent? And how do they translate into kind of economic paradigms? Walls, I think of as going back to Smith's original attack on mercantilism. A, a wall tries to imagine that you can protect something, a firm, an industry, an economy, a way of life, without regard to the lost change that that wall represents. Walls can be physical. They can be anti-immigration. They can be anti-technological advance or anti-progress. Bridges are, like the name suggests, something that takes you to somewhere or back from it. And taking you to somewhere would be preparing people for success in the economy that is and will be. Uh, I think of that as preparation or opportunity. A bridge is also coming back, reconnection, so that if for some reason your line of work or your skills are disrupted by technological change, globalization, or any other structural factor, there's some mechanism that helps you get reconnected. You know, classical economists uh, really emphasize mass participation, everybody in the same boat, in the economy. That's what Enlightenment thinkers were focused on, the idea of mass flourishing. The more neoliberal interpretation of economics in recent decades has been a little bit more narrow. And I, I'm trying to put the liberal back in neoliberal. <laughs> That's great. Um, so when we think about bridges uh, in particular, you know, I think we can all imagine what some of the walls, both physical and metaphorical, have been in recent uh, recent times. But when you think about bridges, what are some of the most important bridges that you think policymakers in Washington today can start building to allow for that economic growth and, and prosperity, uh, even as the world changes rapidly around us? Are there kind of specific policy interventions you have in mind? There are, and it may be useful to step back a second and look at times in which our country has done that successfully in the past. So one example I spend a lot of time on in the book is in the middle of the Civil War, President Lincoln establishes land-grant colleges through the Morrill Act with Congress. And the land-grant colleges are very useful in that in that day, agriculture was the old economy, nascent manufacturing was the new economy. It was the explicit goal of President Lincoln and the Congress to help that adaptation. The land-grant colleges were a mass uh, supply shock, if you will, the ability of the economy to provide education to more men and women than ever before. And it allowed local customization, what you did, depended on the area of the country, and the land-grant college then permeated through the local business community and economy. Another example of success um, going forward in time was the GI Bill of Franklin Roosevelt. Same idea, there were now many people returning from war to a different economy than the one they left, how were we going to help them succeed? In today's economy, ask yourself what institution is best able to establish and reestablish skills 
in my judgment, it would be community colleges. And we need, a la the spirit of the old Morrill Act, a large-scale block grant uh, for community colleges. And I talk about some work I had done with other economists on designing such a block grant. And I would note that's very different than the calls today for free tuition from community colleges. That argument, whatever its merits, does nothing to give resources to community colleges, which is the real problem. Uh, a second thing we need is to think harder about support for low-wage work. You can't ask people to climb the ladder of labor market success if they're not even on the ladder. And our current programs like the earned income tax credit that try to support work are not bold enough uh, in my view. I also think we need to give some aid in certain ways to communities. Economists used to be very skeptical of that. We always had the view that we would just move people to jobs, you know, the, the so-called go west young person mentality of, of Horace Greeley from some years ago. That's not how our economy is working today. And we really, really need to help communities in transition. So I outlined those series of interventions some of which are rethinking the way we think about what economists would call social insurance in the labor market, and others are thinking about preparation, but all with an idea of tying more people to productive work in times of change. Those are great, great responses. And, and we're going to come back to that idea of you know, investing in places relative to investing in people uh, in a few minutes. Um, but now I'd love to transition and, and talk explicitly about the energy system and some of the changes that we are seeing and that we are likely to see uh, in, in the decades ahead, especially, you know, as the need to confront climate change becomes ever more urgent. When, you know, you hear folks in the federal government or uh, at, at the state level or in advocacy talk about the need to address climate change, the discussion is often framed around jobs and creation of green jobs. Um, so based on the arguments in your book, I suspect you're a little bit skeptical of that focus on green jobs when thinking about climate change. Um, so I'm curious if uh, if I'm correct to think that you're suspicious about that green jobs framing. And if so, if you can just explain why you think that might not be the most fruitful approach. I am skeptical, but it doesn't mean that I'm skeptical of the idea that we need to do a lot uh, to combat climate change. We do. I'm skeptical of that argument. There will be some new jobs as we develop new technologies and industries, just like there always are. But by the way, we're also going to take away some old jobs. It is not a... Uh, an overstatement to say states like West Virginia could be very significantly affected by adaptation toward different energy mixes. The right answer, it seems to me, is to prepare people for a whole set of new jobs, some of which may be in new energy and environmental areas, but some might be in healthcare or other sectors of the economy. I would rather us do that than talk about walls of protecting people. You know, I use a metaphor in the book of Youngstown, Ohio, where I've taken groups of students for a few years. And in Youngstown, politicians every four years would come to the city and say, I can make it like it was. I'm going to restore the world. And I get nervous when we tell coal country it's going to be fine or we're not going to adjust the fossil fuel mix in the country. We need to do those things, but we can't do those things and just tell those people imagine green jobs. We need to imagine a, a much richer theory of just transition. 
Yeah, I think I think that's totally right. And and you know, much of the work that that I've done on energy transition, uh, you know, comes to some of those very same conclusions. I, I'm wondering if you can reflect for a moment on the the politics of all of this. I mean, you know, touting job creation, touting walls, uh, touting protection of a certain class of worker or a certain way of community being, right? That certainly seems to have very strong political valence in the U.S. And uh, other arguments that might be a little bit more abstract, harder to grasp onto, uh, I imagine um, that might be where you would put the argument that that you're making. I'm curious how you think about the politics of this. And I know you've you know, you've wrestled with this at the very highest level. The book starts off with a conversation uh, or a briefing you uh, you make to President George W. Bush uh, that kind of covers some of the same ground. So curious if you can just reflect on the politics for a moment. Well, the politics are very important. And, and the reason I tell the Bush story is I think I learned more from President Bush in that episode than he learned from me. I, I gave the standard Econ 101, and I would call it Econ 101 plus answers. I showed him maps of job losses downstream from what he would want to do. He reminded me, however, that he hadn't heard anything from me about the noticing or protecting the people and communities that he was trying to do. In other words, he was very much focused on a politics that I at least had missed uh, as an economist. I think today, part of the problem is economists tend to look at these as individual issues and let's do this policy here and this policy there to have salience in a big campaign for somebody, let's say, running for president. You need to have an agenda that something bigger is possible. And uh, in econ speak, I, I would you know, default to the ideas of mass participation and, and mass flourishing. I'm sure a politician could do a better job than that. And then the question is, what are the big ideas like Lincoln's land-grant colleges or Roosevelt's GI Bill that really make that flesh? I think it's good economics, but I, I also think it's good politics. If somebody were entering in 2024, whether he or she is a Democrat or Republican, doesn't matter. I think there's a lane to be had for somebody who says, I can really help you get to the world that's going to be. Because I think it's easy to characterize these previous attempts at walls, however good they sound or make you feel for 90 seconds, as a failure. Yeah. So let's let's go back to this energy transition question for a moment, and and I suspect you've already touched on some of these issues. But as you know, you know, we at RFF are doing lots of work on energy transition topics. Um, you know, the equity implications of that transition for workers and for communities and for other stakeholders. Do you have any guiding principles that you would suggest as policymakers in D.C. and perhaps elsewhere think about the energy transition and the types of policies that are needed to you know, enable folks who may be in the current fossil energy workforce to find success in a future job, whatever that job might be? Well, first, a shout out to the work that you've been leading at RFF. I think it is incredibly important, not just in terms of economic policy, which is RFF's knitting, as it were, but also in understanding the politics of the situation. I would think a first principle is to notice. You know, I, I remind people in the book of the my favorite episode of the entire financial crisis was the Queen of England, of all people, going to the London School of Economics and asking a bunch of economists worthies, why did nobody notice? How could it be? 
that something as big as the financial crisis happened and you guys and gals didn't see it. The same thing about these big transitions. When we talk only about let's put a price on carbon or let's develop this technology or that technology, it's as if we're not noticing the disruption that would happen for millions of people and communities. Fortunately, there is a way to deal with that. It is a form of bridge. It is the very work you're trying to do at RFF. And as you have chronicled before, there are many programs we've tried that have been successful in this regard. There are also many programs that have not been successful. And we need to figure out what works and which institutions can work and bundle that. I would suggest a second principle is to try to talk about that first before we even talk about the disruption. You know, I used to have an image in my mind about growth policy that we need to speed up the boat. And then the theory is the rising tide will lift all boats. Now I think we need to get more people in the boat before we speed it up. And I think the same thing is true here. The more we can talk about the transitions, we lay the predicate for what is to come. I, I think, for example, Canada did a better job than France in recent years in, in pivoting in policy by talking about transition before talking about major changes in prices that would be effectively higher carbon prices. I think there's a lesson there for us too. Right. Yeah. Thinking back to the, the Gilets Jaunes or Yellow yep. Vest uh, incident there. You know, another question that comes to mind that I've kicked around with uh, with colleagues and, and curious about your view on, this goes to the, the point you just made a moment ago about trying to get ahead of the energy transition issues, whereas, uh, you know, some other previous economic shocks were not anticipated or not widely anticipated. One of the theories that I have is that, you know, the energy transition and the displacement that is likely to come from it is in a lot of ways easier to predict. It's much more foreseeable than something like the financial crisis or maybe, you know, the disruption of steel production in the United States because of China's entry into the WTO, which you chronicle in the book in, in lots of great detail. Do you think that's right, that the energy transition and the disruptions that come with it are somehow more predictable than some of the other big transitions we faced? I think as a transition, yes. Its consequences, though, strike me as, as still quite uncertain. Just another example that I, I gave earlier, Artificial intelligence is something that I think could have absolutely um, wrenching effects in the labor market, but I can't really foresee how all that turns out. I think we need to use the predictability, to use your term, of both of those to really get policy in gear now uh, while we have the chance. We, we should be preparing people and communities even before a policy happens. I, for example, and I suspect you, uh, wish we'd already put a price on carbon. We haven't, but I think we ought to be preparing people and communities for that eventuality in advance. And then I think it makes ultimately the policies we need to do more politically feasible. Yeah, I agree. Um, and um, yeah, so, such uh, it's such a tricky um, kind of web to weave when we put all these things together because the the consequences are difficult to predict, even if the broad trends are, are pretty evident. So, um, you know, going back to this issue of places uh, and people, one of the biggest challenges of the energy transition is that 
you know, the places today where fossil fuels are produced and consumed in industrial quantities, they're often quite rural. And, you know, these sectors can play a really large role in the regional and local economies. Um, so I'm just curious if you could say a little bit more about the mix of policies that the federal government should consider when we think about supporting places, you know, communities, cities, counties, stuff like that, versus people um, through uh, policies such as lump sum transfers or relocation assistance or uh, other supports that can be used anywhere. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. For places, I think you're looking to um, facilitate a transition to a new employment mix and a new business mix. So the way I think of it, uh, as with the land-grant colleges, imagined all over the country were a set of applied research centers whose job is dissemination of new things, which by the way, was one of the early functions of the land-grant colleges, both to agriculture and to, and to manufacturing. And then imagine more targeted block grants to areas where long-term job loss is a present problem or a likely future problem. To look at examples in the past, the fact that a community may seem to have a weaker employment base today doesn't necessarily argue for disaster. So Massachusetts is an example I give in the book that between the 1920s and the 1960s, as, as textile mills went away, Massachusetts business people came together and said, look, we're not going to tell people we're bringing the mills back. We're going to do something different. Pittsburgh is another example that after World War II, when the handwriting was already on the wall for the steel industry, Pittsburgh began making a series of changes. To me, place-based aid can facilitate that by partnering with local educational institutions that were important both in Massachusetts and in Pittsburgh and with local business people. Mm -hmm. And do you think from an energy transition perspective, do you think that ends up meaning that the federal government should look to provide additional support to fossil fuel communities in, in ways that may not be available to you know parts of the country that are, that are less dependent on fossil fuels for employment and economic activity? I think it might, but I wouldn't describe it as just two fossil fuel communities. I would describe it two communities that are going through disruptive technological change uh, it wouldn't matter whether we're talking about from foreign competition or the development of an entirely new technology that transforms work, or in this case, the move of energy away from a fossil fuel mix to some other mix. To me, that's the right thing to do. I think if we call it transition aid because you were in fossil fuels, that does run more of a political risk, even though the transfer itself is the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. That's really interesting. So, um, one other question that is, you know, pretty pretty adjacent to what we've just been talking about is the approach that some policymakers have increasingly taken, in which they argue for something that's a little bit more of an explicit industrial policy, where uh, where the federal government or perhaps state governments, you know, have targeted spending at targeted parts of the economy. In this case, it might be clean energy, uh, where there's interest in funding for regional hubs of technology, such as hydrogen or carbon capture or other emerging technologies. I'm curious what you think uh, of that approach of federal dollars targeting specific uh, technologies in specific places. I'm more skeptical uh, of that. There's an 
old Latin expression that in English is translated who watches the watchers. So who picks um, the industry, the technology, the area? To me, just like in general, when you think about the federal government in science, we typically think of the federal government as being an engine of basic research and then others uh, will develop applications of that research. I think we can go a step further here since we're talking about more applied problems to imagine the federal government locating applied research centers with an eye toward new technologies in energy, but with perhaps no bias as to which technology uh, it is. So I, I, I would be more skeptical of that approach. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I think in the Department of Energy today, there certainly seems to be more of an emphasis on deployment, uh, especially of early stage technologies, pilot technologies, uh, and so on, rather than the more traditional focus on research and development. Um, so it sounds like you might be a little bit more skeptical as we move on that spectrum from research and development towards more deployment-focused activities. I am. There is a gap, of course, between basic research that the federal government has traditionally played a large role in and picking literal technologies. I think there is a middle ground, as I mentioned earlier, of trying to locate applied research centers around the country that could have uh, a flavor of suggesting developments in new energy technologies, but without picking a particular technology and say, we're going to put hydrogen in this city and we're going to put a, a, some renewable in another city. That to me uh, raises again the who watches the watchers question. I don't know on whose expertise that would rely. Right. Yeah, it makes me my my familiarity with that phrase comes from comic books and uh, the the series The Watchmen and the wonderful HBO adaptation of The Watchmen that uh, came out in recent years. Mine comes um, from high school Latin, but I just can't <laughs> quite remember. It's something like qui custodia ipsos custodis, something like that. But but yes, who watches the watchers? Yeah, it's it's a crucial question. Um, so one last question before we go to top of the stack, which is again in, in the same vein of uh, of topics, which is, you know, the the current administration and, you know, some other uh, advocates and researchers that, that I know make arguments for investing in manufacturing supply chains for specific technologies, in particular, you know, clean energy technologies like critical minerals that we know are going to be important in the future. To what extent do you think it's a useful um, expenditure of federal dollars to try to locate some of these supply chains in the United States rather than depending on foreign supplies from, from China or other nations? Well, of course, the easy principled answer is if there is a bona fide national security reason, we should do that. The problem becomes too many things quickly glom onto the word national security. I think a lot of businesses themselves learned they had made mistakes in supply chains that they weren't as resilient as they wanted and i expect that market forces will make them more resilient but i do think where there's a critical area there is a way of trying to uh, improve supply chains in the u.s i don't know that it re requires uh, a lot of federal investment but it might yeah really interesting 
Well, these are such uh, important topics, and it's really great to discuss them with you, Glenn, and you have such a, a broad range of expertise. And I, again, want to just recommend the book to people. It's called The Wall and the Bridge. We will, of course, have a link to it in the show notes so people can check it out and get a, a, a really wide-ranging take on economic change, technological change, and how we might be able to adapt to it in the future. So let's close out today's episode, Glenn, with the question we ask everyone who comes on the show, which is to recommend something that you've read or watched or heard recently. Uh, it can be related to the environment or even just tangentially related, but something that you think is really interesting and that you'd recommend to our listeners. Well, I have a recommendation that's interesting to me, and it may be off the beaten path um, for some of the recommendations you get. It's a book called Storm. Uh, it's a short book. It's by George Stewart. It was actually published in 1941. I read it reading through a series of New York Review of Books books. And the idea of storm is really the immensity of nature. It talks about an enormous storm that is coming through the Pacific and then hits California, much of the West Coast, the unpreparedness, the damage that it wreaks, and just the awesomeness of nature and our ability in some ways to cope and our inability in others. I think the book itself is a nice metaphor for the power of nature and it's written in a, in a haunting way. I think anybody who picks it up uh, won't put it down. Hmm. Storm 1941, probably unusual. You probably get a lot of more typical uh, uninhabitable earth uh, recommendations, <laughs> but I, I'm going to stick to storm. That's fantastic. Yeah, we we try hard to get a wide range of, uh, of recommendations on the show. And so uh, that sounds really fascinating. We'll have a, a link to it in the show notes so people can check it out. Well, one more time, Glenn uh, Hubbard from Columbia University and RFF, thank you so much for writing this really fascinating book and for coming and talking to us on Resources Radio. We really appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me. You've been listening to Resources Radio. Learn how to support resources for the future at rff.org support. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. Resources Radio is a podcast from Resources for the Future. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the podcast guests and may differ from those of RFF experts, its officers, or its directors. RFF does not take positions on specific legislative proposals. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson, with music by me, Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode.